Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome everyone tonight as we're continuing our study of the book of Genesis, and we are in Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And we have already read the text. So those who are with us live on the Zoom call, we just spent the last 10 minutes or so reading the text. And if you're listening online, maybe you stop the recording and just read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, maybe start in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and then read all the way through chapter 9. So we just read the text. So now the question is, you know, we have the notes, we can go through them. What questions do you have? What observations do you have? What what did you see? Anything you noticed, or anything you want to point out? Or I, I thought it interesting that uh, when he set out the uh, dove that found no resting place, mm. returned to the ark, but only seven days later she found an olive leaf. Mm. That's uh, that's some fast growing olives. Somebody else? I didn't take the time to count them, and I wish I had. I wish I had read the prior and really noted uh, mm. yeah, consistencies. But there were multiple sevens throughout the whole reading. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. And even sometimes, by the way, Anthony, I think in one place it says 17, but in the Hebrew it says 10 and 7. 10, 7. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's very explicit. And in fact, I think one of the references to rest was 10 and 7, you know, obviously, and God rests on the seventh day. Yeah, so yeah, the numbers... And the numbers are not haphazard. They're very intentional and very significant. And I think if we had time to go through it all, we'd find some biblical scholars that have done all the work and say, well, look at all this stuff. It's just, it's crazy how often. So yeah, very good. And obviously you guys probably noticed the be fruitful and multiply and that language, of course, of Genesis chapter one, uh, that continued to go along. Noah would be a new Adam then. So if you look at Genesis nine, verse seven, as for you, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply on it. That's a new commission to Noah to be the new Adam. You may not know this, but the only time the word ark is used in the biblical text is twice. Once in this account, and one, anybody know the second account, second occurrence of the word ark? No, it's the boat that Moses' mom made for him. Hmm. It's actually called an ark. It's called an ark. And it's the same word. And in fact, in both cases, they're covered with pitch. It's the same Hebrew word. There's no question that Moses being preserved through the boat and the river is paralleling Noah. So that's very mm-hmm. actually that's a little Exodus insight there. Let's go to the end and discuss the last section, which on my notes it's chapter 9, 18 through 29. And uh, look at that because there's a couple of things that are interesting there. So yeah. did anybody notice that something else that describes Noah as an Adam-like person, as an Adam-like character? Well, I have a question around that section because. Okay. So I, I don't know whether this is what you mean, but I'm noticing if, so Noah, he drank wine, which is fruit. And then he, he was naked. Yes. And then his sons covered him, were ashamed of the nakedness. So, oh, no. and okay. then, because they realized, and then they covered him up and then he got angry and then he cursed them, which is a bit of a mix up between God and Adam and Adam and you know, Adam okay. eating the fruit. So I'm, I'm sort of curious about that. So let's, let's, so there's two, there's really two different things here. Let's talk about one of them first. And that is Ham saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers. Okay. So that's, that's a phrase in Hebrew. It's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And it means something really bad. 
it's a euphemism. So to cover a person's nakedness means to have sex with their wife. Oh. Okay. And I don't have, I didn't put the references on the outline. I don't know the references myself. I can find them out, but it occurs several times in the old Testament story. He had sex with his mom. In fact, this makes sense because look at verse 25, chapter nine, verse 25. And it says, cursed be Canaan. Like, wait a minute, Ham did this. Canaan is Ham's son. Why is he cursed? Because he's the product of the, of the rape. Oh. That's why. And of course, if you're an Israelite and you're reading the story, one of the functions of the story is it's explaining the origin of the Canaanites. <laughs> and it's not a good origin story, is it? It's like, no. oh, guess where the Canaanites came from? Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, they were the result of rape and they, they were born cursed. So it's kind of this one of those narratives of, as we go into the promised land and take over this promised land, just be reminded of who the Canaanites really are. I, I think that's probably a theme, a polemic that the author is actually making. But I was actually, when I first, I'm like, oh, there's so much sense. I don't know why I never was taught that for 20 years of Sunday school classes and 30 years of, of teaching, whatever. Obviously, I'm not an Old Testament guy. But you ask any Old Testament scholar at all, like, yeah, he had sex with his mom. And that's the child that came about. And that's why Canaan, that's, why was Canaan cursed? Because uh, he's the offspring. It's like, oh, that makes so much sense, but it's, it's crazy. Does that make, I'm sorry, does that make Abraham's faith even all, or Abram's faith, all the more profound? Because he's told to go from Haran to the land of Canaan. So in his mind, if he knows the story, he's like, I mean, I would think, what? What are you, what are you asking me to do? Well, yeah, I think maybe so. What's even more profound about the Abraham episode, and we'll, we'll try to look at the beginning of Genesis 12 next week. We yeah. should be able to is because that's like Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3 is the key to the entire biblical story. So uh, that's what happened. That's like your thesis statement in the entire Bible is Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. What's more significant in my mind, actually, I think, Anthony, is the fact that he's called to leave his family and his land. And that doesn't happen. You don't leave ancestral land, which he had already left, and you don't leave your family. I mean, that's just, that's everything. Honor your father and mother means to care for them when they get old. And I, there's, by the way, there's a dispute whether Abraham waited for his father to die or whether Abraham didn't wait for his father to die. But I think that's even more profound. And so, so yeah, maybe if you add to, oh, and by the way, and go here, you're like, ah, oh, I'm not sure I want to go there. But uh, I think it's the leaving of, of, of all that. So, okay, that's the first thing there. And then and let's go back to what Helen's initial point. Did anybody know anything else about what Helen was picking up on in chapter um, 9, 18 through 29? The Noah story kind of parallels, reminiscent of creation. Noah, uh, Noah being a farmer, is that the yeah. one of the connections? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Creation. Adam and Eve, were, they were gardening. Right. Uh, they, they were supposed to be gardeners in the garden, and he's drinking the fruit of the garden, and that's not, he's doing what Adam was doing. And then he got drunk. And guess what? Did you notice, by the way, that after the flood was over, it's like, well, I'm never going to flood the world again. This is chapter nine, verse. Uh, is it eight twenty one? The inclination of the heart. There you go. Is evil from childhood, which was kind of that yeah. saddened me to read that. I was like, really? Right? Well, that's what. That's why God flooded the world, though, right? In chapter six, mm -hmm. was because oh, guess what? At chapter six, verse five, and it says. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. So I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and flood the world then. And then the flood ends and he's like, well, guess what? Um, every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. Like, oh, well, guess that didn't work. 
And that's kind of where we're at in the biblical story. And that is the author wants us to see that. He wants us to go, okay, well, it wasn't going to be Cain and, and Abel. That didn't work. And then Seth came along. We thought, oh, good hopes there. Okay, that didn't work. And then Noah was like this righteous man. It's got to be Noah. He's got to be the seed of, of the woman. The whole story is who is the seed of the woman that's going to be victorious over the seed of the serpent? Oh, it's not Noah either. And ultimately it's Abraham. But then it's not Abraham. So it's Isaac. Oh, but then it's not Isaac. So it's Jacob. Oh, but then it's not Jacob. So it's Judah. But then, okay, but where's this Judah guy, right? Oh, maybe it's David. Maybe, maybe we read the Solomon story a number of weeks back. Oh, it's Solomon. He, he asked for wisdom. He got it right. And then what did he do with his wisdom? Not the right thing. And oh, he, horses and chariots. So we're like, okay, it's it ultimately it's pointing us to Jesus. So I think the author wants us to see, yeah, the flood actually didn't really completely work, so to, so to speak. Any other thoughts or questions there? Yeah, so. Telling Abraham. Well, so here's the deal. Let's go back to chapter, beginning of seven. Another illustration of, Adam and Noah, the parallel between Adam and Noah is that all the animals come to, come to Noah, just like they came to Adam. Adam named all the animals. Now with Noah, all the animals come to him and they got on the ark. And the ark is like a mini Eden because all the animals are coming to him. And this is where protection and preservation outside of Eden is death and destruction. Outside of the ark is the flood and chaos, right? Remember, so if you go back to Genesis chapter one, verse two, there was chaos, the tahom, the deep, and that's the bad. And yet inside the ark is life and preservation and, and safety and peace. But look what it says in, in chapter seven. It says, take with you every clean animal by sevens. He doesn't just take two of every kind. The clean ones. You're like, well, when did he know about the sacrificial system? Because as far as we know, there is no sacrifice. I mean, the sacrificial system is Moses. We're a long ways away from a sacrificial system. But the purpose of taking the seven and the clean is to sacrifice them. So it could be that he had some doves to spare because they were definitely sacrificial animals. So, and I, I'm, as a New Testament guy, um, I could probably be reading the, this in the end of the Old Testament and it might not be there. But in the New Testament, the doves were for the poor because they couldn't afford them. And so, the, and doves and pigeons are related quite a bit, um, a, a dove. So I don't know if that's the case here that the dove are part of the sevens because they took extra of them. And so he had some to spare. So I don't care if you go out and don't come back. It's no big deal. I got others that can still mate and repopulate here. If you're thinking that way, that's what's going on. So uh, anything else? Well, well, he could have sacrificed those doves uh, a couple of years later because uh, he made wine and, and that's going to take a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, that's true too. Which is, again, I think we're pressing the story too much if we're trying to take the facts as... Sure, sure. As like factual story. I think there's facts around the story, surrounding the story, but I'm not sure the details uh, are necessarily doing that. So let's well, go. They yeah. also had to, they also had to survive. They had to eat while they were on the ark. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And they took all the food on the ark, right? So. Mm -hmm. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. 
Let's go to the top of the notes if you want to go through that and let's kind of run through that, see what other questions we have. There's a few old New Testament verses that we want to look at and kind of finish this up. Very, very top of the notes where the script is at. It says, as we read the flood narratives, chapter seven and eight, ultimately, it's important to read the text as literature and though here's the parallels. First off, the tahom, the Hebrew word tahom is the deep. And I put the references where it occurs in the creation account, chapter one, and then where it occurs in the flood count. Earth is covered by water, again, in the flood count and in the creation account. Wind and spirit of God hover over the waters. That's Genesis 1, verse 2, chapter 8, verse 1. The water recedes, 1, 9, 8, and then 8, 1, 2, 5. Land appears, the classification of the animals. God blesses them, chapter 128, chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply. We saw twice or three times in the flood account, 8, 17, 9, 1, and 9, 7. Of course, that comes from chapter 1, verse 28. And then in God's image, chapter 127 and chapter 9, verse 6. And 9, 6, of course, is after the flood account, but nonetheless, all right. Uh, the flood account is the undoing of creation. It's decreation. Remember, if you were with us back when we did Genesis 1 or you listened to the podcast, we noted the fact that the waters covered the earth and inhibited God from creating. So God separates the waters both vertically with water above and water below, and then horizontally with the seas and creating the dry land. Therefore, what he's doing is he's bringing the waters back over the earth in order to decreate. I put down in the next paragraph that the narrative does not put the onus on God. He's not angry. He's not vengeful. In fact, God actually is showing mercy by preserving a remnant. Chapter six. Yeah, go ahead. Well, with relation to uh, water, does that does that link into Revelation? Because I know there's a whole section of you know the water coming out and getting deeper and deeper. Yeah. Yeah. That's Ezekiel 47, actually, right? Oh, it's Ezekiel. Sorry. It is Ezekiel. Yeah, no problem at all. Ezekiel 47 describes the water going out deep, and that's the river of life that comes out. But that is not related to this water here. I think what you see in Revelation 21, where it says there's no longer any sea. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, first heaven, first earth path away, and there's no longer any sea. And you're like, what does the sea have to do? I mean, why refer to, if there's no longer any, you might say, death and obviously it does a few verses later but why single out the sea and that's just because the sea is chaos and then the sea is where chaos monsters live and the sea is destruction and death and the sea is of the abyss where the devil resides things of that nature that well until he's thrown in like a fire so that's right okay so then i put down um the flood i, I kind of gave you some notes there let's see the generations of noah uh, he's a righteous man and blameless um earth was corrupt let's say noah built an ark uh, I did put the references on the notes here, ark, the word ark, and if you see chapter 6, 13 to 22, it says um, that word ark occurs twice uh, here, and also in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, and Exodus chapter 2, verse 5, where Moses is saved in an ark. And in both cases, that we use the, the word gopher wood or wood appears only in these two instances in the, in the Old Testament. And pitch, of course, is a, a parallel. Um, there. Actually, the gopher wood might appear only, only in the Genesis account, so... And then God's going to establish a covenant. By the way, the notion that, oh, the rainbow didn't exist before that. No, all the rainbow is when God makes a covenant, he often takes something that already exists and says, I'm going to use that now as my sign. And so there's no sense that the Genesis account says, oh, there was no rain before the flood. It had never rained before because there was never a rainbow. It's like, no, I think there's simply, God's simply saying, I'm going to take the rainbow now so that when you see rain, it'll remind you the fact that it's not going to rain forever. It's going to stop. And same thing with Jesus takes the bread and says, this is the sign of the new covenant. It's not like, oh, that's the first time bread ever appeared in the Bible. It's like, no, actually it appeared many times in the Bible. So unless you have any questions, let's kind of go to the, the bottom and look at the New Testament references there. So any questions or comments? First Peter chapter three, verse 20. 
who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And only a few people, eight in all, for all safety water. Oh, yeah, verse, go ahead and read verse 21 also, by the way, David. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. that saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is, God, is at God's right hand, with angels, authority, and power, and submission to him. And this is a really problematic passage, and we're not going to get into the details of it. But... The flood is a type of baptism. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 says, so Noah and his family were saved in the ark and uh, through, through the water and corresponding to that to baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And obviously some people use that to say, see, baptism saves you. I think the context is he's simply saying, no, baptism is a sign uh, as was uh, of salvation, of course. It says, of uh, course, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, all right, next thing, and this one obviously becomes, well, actually, let's read the Second Peter 3 passage while we're there, the, the, the bottom one, Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. Second Peter now, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. And the question in this passage is, where is the second coming of Jesus? Which is a funny question because, you know, Peter's writing, what, 35 years after the, the death of Jesus, and people are already going, where is the second coming happening? And like, 1900 and something years later, we're still kind of asking the same question. So 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. Somebody want to read it? Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come uh, with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at this time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for, for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You want to read verse 8 and 9 while you're at it, Bill, since it kind of fits <clears throat> in the context of the conversation? But do not let this one one fact escape your notice, beloved, that which that with that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay. Oh, you know, where is this coming of Jesus? You know, everything's gone on as it has since the beginning, and like, well, you forgot the fact that it's there's been a lot of things that have, like a flood, things have not gone on as it has been since the beginning. There's been a lot of things that have been changed. And the reality is, God is not slow in keeping his promises. All right, let's go to Matthew 20. This, believe it or not, is a rapture passage. People who believe in the rapture, they go, oh, look at Matthew says. It's like, this is the opposite of a rapture. So, which verse? Which verse? Uh, Matt, let's go to Matthew 24, 37 through 41. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. 
the context here is simply saying, look, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, will be just like it was in the time of Noah, meaning they were surprised. They were not expecting it, which, you know, this end time speculation goes, oh, we're going to have all, we have all these clues as to when Jesus is going to return. And the answer is, well, we know this, the non-believers have no clue. They're marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and like, what are you guys going on that for? It's going to rain. What? No, you, oh, you got to be kidding me. And then the flood comes and destroys them. So in the same way, and Paul uses language like this in Thessalonians also, that people will go on marrying, giving in marriage, doing all these things, totally ignorant of the fact that judgment's coming upon them. And then guess what happens? Well, then God comes in judgment. And the comparison, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. The person that's taken is the person who's taken in judgment. The person who's left is Noah. The person who's left is the righteous one. So this idea that, oh, there's a rapture passage. See, someday God's going to come rapture people away. Two people standing in the field. One will be taken, the other one will be left. Like, you don't want to be taken. <laughs> you, you want to be left. You know, so it's like, oh, I can't wait till the Lord raptures me out of the way. It's like, no, you, if you're raptured here, you're raptured for judgment because it's the ones who were carried away in the flood. So really ironic. It's, it's just crazy that anyone can use this as a rapture passage when the, the parallel is, yeah, they were all taken in Noah's day. And the ones who were taken was everyone else besides Noah. And they were taken in judgment. So can I, can I ask you, Rob, um, there was another um, passage that said, you know, with the flood, with, in Noah's time, it was water, but the next time it will be fire. So what, can you expand on that a little bit? What yeah, that's Second Peter 3. So if we just would have kept reading a few more verses, I think it's 8 and 9. I think we read, or, or maybe 10. Fire is just, it's just judgment. It's just purifying judgment. It's all, all it is. So this is the passage that says, uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its work will be burned up. Uh, so, and then it goes on to verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of our God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So it's like, see, and what people do is they say, oh, well, one time God destroyed the world by flood. Now he's going to destroy the world by fire. And that's leads to this idea that you don't need to worry about creation care or the trees or the animals because God's just going to burn this whole thing up. And all that's been referred to there is the refining fire mentality, the idea of fire is purifying. It can be destructive. It, it can annihilate things. But fire is purifying. And so it, it, it burns away the impurities, but it leaves the purities, right? So if you, if you take gold in a, to an intense heat, all the other things melt away. And then the only thing that's left is the gold. It's not saying that the world's going to be like burned up and melted away. It's the impurities are going to be destroyed. And I think when you see Revelation 21, actually, let's look at it now since I keep referring to it. Go ahead, Helen. Does, well, does that feed into also one will be taken and one will be left? Because the one that's taken is, it's burnt, they're sort of, I know it's, meta, I'm saying metaphorically, and I'm not saying they're going to yeah. stand there and just be right, right. away, but oh. will, is that what that means with the purification? One will be taken because their impurities will be burnt away, but the other person who's more, I, I guess, I don't want to say more pure because I right, yeah, we're, I mean, we're yeah. all we're all not. found pure by the lord mm -hmm. right um i've never thought of putting those two verses together 
Perhaps you can say that. I'm not sure that I would put them together though. It's just two different references to judgment and I'm not sure that they were meant to be read together, but I guess you can. So I don't know. Right, Revelation 21, yeah. go ahead. Could you put Act 2 together with that? That as light of the world, um, God is using us through you know, the Holy Spirit through us that, that, that in, in essence, we're purifying the world. Not of our own flesh, but of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but I wouldn't combine that with Second Peter three, though, right? Because Second Peter three is like the final judgment. That's all. It's just so. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. All right. So Revelation twenty one, and it says in verse one, right, it says, "I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away." Now log on to that word "passed away" or two words, depending on your translation, and there's no longer any sea. And now let's get down to verse four. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Ah, verse four tells you what passed away. Now, if you have just one, verse one, you're thinking, well, the first heaven, the first earth passed away. Okay, they're, they're gone. They're done. They no longer exist. There's a new heaven and a new earth. They replace the first heaven and the first earth. But if you keep reading verse four, what passes away is death, mourning, crying, and pain. So you read the two verses. I might want to understand, oh, it's the impurities, the corruption, the finiteness of the creation that passes away, not earth. In fact, the whole idea is that heaven comes down to the earth and the earth is restored, um, purified, let's see, uh, glorified, perfected. How's that? And that's what's happening there. It's not this annihilation of heaven and earth. You have this logical, like, if God destroys heaven and earth and then creates a new one, where are we in the meantime? It's like uh, that conundrum I don't think is meant to be answered because I just think it, it's just meant to show the, the silliness of saying one's wiped away and then the other one comes. Well, does the other one come first? And okay, hey, you guys go there. Why blow this one up? Or does he blow this one up? And like, what happens to us? You know, I, I just think the silliness of the question just shows you that the idea is silly. So I think what's happening then is sin, death, crying, pain, mourning, those things are the, is actually what passes away. We finished up a little earlier, but that's okay. Any questions or comments or thoughts? Well, I'm getting too in-depth with the eschatology, which I know you're going to do the book of Revelation uh, after Labor Day, but isn't there at least one period where um, Satan gets to do his thing on the earth and us believers are not present on the earth? Isn't there at least one point at A to B where that occurs? No. The reason why I would say that is God does his work through his people. The notion of a rapture is so dangerous and it radically undermines the biblical text because God does his work through us. And so if God does his work through us and then he raptures us out of the way, we discussed last week and the weeks before, God chooses to rule through others. So he chooses to delegate his authority to the sons of God, as well as to Adam and Eve, making us kings and priests. God's good in his own skin. He's totally content being the CEO of the corporation, saying, I don't care if you guys and the board of directors get all kinds of power and authority. This is great. I think it's awesome. I made you guys to rule through you. And I think that's the problem. If you take the church out of the way, the rapturing of the church, like there's no God's means of bringing redemption and restoration are now not that his means are, are gone, it's that, that those means to which he chose or he chose to, to work, that's what's gone. So 
he chooses to work through through humanity by means of the spirit through his people and that's why he says you go make me known now you you go out to the nations and make me known." and we do so by imitating jesus which i think we radically underemphasize the significance of how our role is to imitate christ we are to be christ-like people so uh, when jesus says if they've if you see me you've seen the father we should also be able to say if you've seen us you've seen christ Mm. that that's like oh that's almost blasphemous actually it's not supposed to be and that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect that no one's ever saying that or we're, or we're actually going to be jesus without sin and we're going to walk on water and do all that kind of stuff no we're supposed to they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another oh i know what jesus lo- looks like because i saw you guys feeding those people the other day i saw mother Teresa doing with her stuff i, I saw the re- relief efforts of the christians in assam in in the floods i i see I see what Jesus looks like because that's what he would be doing right now. So 10 and 11. Oh, go ahead, Anthony. I, I don't really know how to phrase this, but there's okay. a boatload of tension here. Um, and that, you know, growing up, you always heard the end of time was coming because of the US and Russia and Gorbachev and Reagan and all this craziness. Yes, yeah, yeah. But there were so many people who predicted an exact date. But what really got to me as a young person was the despair that it was breeding. Despair is not of God. Right. And you see these things come through humanity throughout time consistently. Now we need to despair over this. Now we need to despair over this. Yep. And I think it's a challenge to, the, to those of the faith to hold the faith. But the tension here, there was a section we read earlier where it said that the earth would not pass away. But yet, look at what's happening with global warming. And, and is, mm-hmm. in fact, this the next just level of despair to deceive people? I don't believe that it is entirely that because there's obviously videos and documentary stuff and things that are happening. We're destroying the earth. We're right. destroying the garden, and we're the biggest culprits behind that. So I don't I don't lose sleep over it. I don't let it create the overwhelming tension within me that breeds despair. When you have young children, you can't help but feel responsible for the future. And that's the thing that for me is, is just creating that little bit of tension again, because how do I encourage them to be stewards when it seems like we as a, as a mass don't really give a, a rat's behind? We're burning it all up ourselves. That's right. And when you stop to think that if global warming is legit, and I, I personally think that it is also, and the result of superstorms, the result of increase, and then you go, oh yeah, I couldn't meet with the pastors in Assam this morning because their houses were flooded. And it's a once in a century flood, and it could be just a once in a century flood, but it could also be the result of global warming. You're like, yeah, yeah, our, our lack of care. And let's be honest, the industrialized West is more culpable for any, than anybody else is. Let me read you an interesting verse in the book of Revelation that I think fits. I think it does. And I don't think the author of Revelation, I don't think John understood it in the context that we now re- realize the ramifications of what's going on. But Revelation chapter, let me think of what, what the pass I want, chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, it, this is the second coming of Jesus. So the seventh trumpet blows. Uh, verse 15, the kingdom of the world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's Jesus' return, uh, whatever you want to call it that. And it says, uh, verse 17, the 24 elders fall down. Verse 17, they, we give thanks, O Lord God, because you've, you, you who are and who were. not it knows, By the way, in the book of Revelation, you are who you were and you are to, and you is to come. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. It doesn't say who is to come. This is, this is the end. He's, he's come. And it says, you've taken your great um, uh, power and you've begun to reign. Now, the nations were enraged, but your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. I'm in verse 18. And to give your reward to your bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. The judgment of God is against the nations uh, who were enraged, 
At the same time, it's coming to give reward to your saints and the prophets and those who fear your name. And he's also coming to destroy those who destroy the earth. And I think that's what you see in Genesis. And that is that God brings the flood because you guys are destroying my, my creation and I'm not gonna let you do it any longer. And then obviously Noah gets off the boat and gets drunk and everything else. It doesn't get any better. But I do think I wouldn't read modern day science and what we understand from um, uh, global warming and everything else and go, that's it. But I think that I think that is legit. And that is the ones who are destroying the earth are the ones who are recklessly knocking down trees in the Amazon. I think the ones who are who are recklessly, carelessly, I mean, how many, I don't know the number, but it's, it's, it's like crazy. How many um, species of animals die, they go extinct daily? It's like, wow. And then you go back to Genesis, like, yeah, we're called to care for the creation. I, I, think, I think it is fitting. And I, and I do think we need to grieve. Now, I, I do also think of like, okay, well, if we, if we read the news well, then it sounds like there's not a lot of time left for, man on, for mankind on the earth. I just don't think we know that answer, right? So you, you try to read eschatology and go, well, Jesus has to come back soon because this planet's not going to last much longer. We don't, I don't think we know that. I, I, I think the idea of the Paris Accords and things like that is let's see if we can't stop this and reverse this quickly and, and see what we can do. But I think we are leaving our kids and grandkids a really bad place. So, and I think we're responsible. I think we need to, we need to face that. So, yep. All right. That's a fun thought for the day. So, but, but a good thought. Yeah, a good thought. All right. Anybody else? All righty. Um, uh, Karunakar was going to come on, but he probably, wherever he is in Hyderabad, he probably doesn't have access to the internet because he wanted to come on and have us pray for him while he was there. And, uh, but he obviously didn't make it. Marcus is obviously not here, um, caring for the pastors there. And, Continue to pray for Chris and his family as they grieve the loss of his mother. Continue to pray for the family that Dave knows about. And uh, what have you, we'll do one more week. Just so you know, by the way, Genesis 10 and 11 is a genealogy, but there's a Tower of Babel episode in there. And we'll look at that. And then we'll look at chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3 for the, the call of Abraham or Abram as he's called there, because that's the thesis statement in the entire biblical story. And then we'll take a few weeks off. I'm, I'm thinking at least two weeks off. And uh, we'll pick it back up mid of July. I'll get obviously email and everything else and maybe do a video. And we'll do Genesis 12 through 50, kind of a sweeping overview. And then we'll do the book of Revelation after Labor Day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.